BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss pride, why it may not be the deadly sin it's often cracked up to be. We dig into how research defines pride, examine the critical distinction between self-esteem and narcissism, the deep importance of being able to accept criticism, and look at the difference between strategies of dominance and strategies of prestige with Dr. Jessica Tracy. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 725,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we discussed what Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, and others consider to be the single greatest threat to humanity. Why death is not a binary event that makes you transition from being alive or dead at a specific moment in time. We ask if you would spend $1,000 on a chance to live forever. We look at the biology behind cryogenics, vitrification, and putting your body on biological pause. And we explore why poverty, climate change, war, and all of our problems melt away in the face of one extremely important issue with our guest Tim Urban from Wait But Why. If you love exploring relevant, highly fascinating scientific topics, listen to that episode. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Dr. Jessica Tracy. 
Jessica is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, where she also directs the Emotion and Self Lab. She's the author of Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. She's published over 80 journal articles, book chapters, edited volumes and reviews, and her groundbreaking work on pride has been covered in hundreds of media outlets, including Good Morning America, NPR, New York Times, The Economist, and The Scientific American. Jess, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on here. So for listeners who might not be familiar with you and and some of your work, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a researcher and a psychology researcher at the University of British Columbia. I teach psychology, but mainly what I do is do research. And most of my research is on emotions. And the emotions that I kind of specialize in are the emotions that we call self-conscious emotions. These are emotions that are all about how we feel about ourselves. And they typically include uh, shame, guilt, and pride. And pride is the one that I've really done the most research on. Very exciting. So tell me a little bit sort of what is pride? And I know a lot of people have misconceptions or or maybe don't really understand it, obviously not to the degree that you do. But when people think of pride, they might not necessarily think of kind of what you talk about. So how do you define pride? Yeah. So pride is, you know, in its simplest terms, it's the emotion that we feel when we feel good about ourselves. And that can mean we feel good about ourselves for having accomplished something really big and really important, or even something small, but that we worked hard for. Or it could be that we feel good about ourselves because we just kind of are reflecting back and feel like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. I'm really great. And those are two slightly different feelings. And, and we can talk about that, that pride is not one kind of simple thing. It's two different things. But in its most straightforward sense, it's basically these positive feelings about oneself. When many people think of pride, you know, that it's a deadly sin, pride cometh before a fall, all that kind of stuff. Is pride something that's negative? Yeah, well, so this is kind of the big issue that I was sort of implying that pride can be negative, but it's also positive. And so what we found is that there actually are two different kinds of pride experiences. This is a really big, important finding because I think the failure to distinguish between these two prides has led to all kinds of confusion in many different ways. So on the one hand, we have the kind of pride that is all about feelings of self-confidence and self-worth. And it's, you know, typically felt in response to a hard-earned accomplishment, you know, when you really work for something that's important to you and, and you achieve it, and then you feel good about yourself as a result. And we call that authentic pride. And that's because it's based on an authentic sense of self. You're sort of reflecting on who you are and the hard work you put in in a realistic manner. And that kind of pride is linked to all kinds of good outcomes. So when you feel that kind of pride, it typically makes you want to keep on working hard. People who tend to feel it tend to be good people. They care about others. They care about their society. They want to help others. And they're high in sort of achievement motivation. But there is this other kind of pride as well. And that's the kind of pride that we feel when it's not just that we feel good about ourselves, but that we feel like we're really great and even better than everyone else, right? This is the kind of pride that's linked to arrogance, egotism, conceitedness. And we call this kind of pride hubristic pride. The word hubris, of course, comes from the Greeks who talked about hubris in pretty much these terms. People who had hubris, according to the Greeks, were people who basically believed they were kind of like gods more than humans. And that's a little bit what hubristic pride is. It really is this almost godlike feeling, very self-aggrandizing. And that kind of pride we found is linked to a lot of kind of problematic outcomes. People who tend to feel it tend to be aggressive, They sort of are manipulative of others. They take advantage of others in order to accomplish their own ends. They're they're sort of selfish. And as a result, they have a number of psychological problems. So they tend to succumb to depression and anxiety. They have trouble making close friends. They're disliked by others around them. There's really kind of a big distinction. These really are two different experiences in many ways. And yet in English, we refer to them with that same word, pride. 
So tell me a little bit more about the distinction kind of between authentic pride and hubristic pride and why haven't people kind of grasped that distinction before? One reason that I think people haven't grasped it, I guess I would say, is because both prides do involve positive feelings about the self. You know, it's it's not that sort of one is pride and one's anger. They're not two totally different emotions. They are both this good feeling about the self. And I think it's pretty easy to say, well, one's just an extreme version, right? And, you know, you feel a little bit of pride, that's authentic pride. You feel a lot of pride, that's hubristic pride. But that's really not what it is. I think, you know, that's an easy mistake to make, but there really is actually more of a qualitative, not just a quantitative difference between these two kinds of pride. And one way to understand it from sort of a psychological perspective is to think about the difference between self-esteem and narcissism. So psychologists talk about self-esteem as this really great thing, right? We want our kids to have high self-esteem and lots of studies have looked at high self-esteem and shown that basically it's related to pretty much everything good that psychologists study. If there's a good personality trait or a good behavior or good social behavior, it's linked to high self-esteem. But narcissism, which is another topic psychologists have studied for quite a while, is linked to all kinds of bad behaviors. Narcissists tend to be aggressive and they take advantage of others. They do all the things that I was saying before, characterize people who feel a lot of hubristic pride. And that's because narcissism, unlike self-esteem, isn't a genuine, you know, good feelings about the self. It's not based on a realistic self-appraisal. It's based on a more exaggerated sense of self. And that's exactly what hubristic pride. Hubristic pride is the emotion that fuels narcissism. And it occurs not when we're kind of looking realistically at ourselves and and what we've done and, and our accomplishments, but rather when we're sort of taking this biased view of ourselves, this sort of inflated view of ourselves, where we really are motivated to see ourselves in the best possible light. And one thing I argue in in my book is that the reason for this motivation is because deep down, people who are feeling hubristic pride really aren't feeling good about themselves at all. So you've got this kind of almost ironic process that happens where when people, some people feel bad about themselves, feel shame, those feelings are so painful to experience rather than consciously accept them, they sort of bury them. They repress them. They pretend they're not there. They try to avoid them. And one way of doing that or one way to help do that is to instead experience the opposite, right? So, you know, you feel threatened in some way, someone maybe criticizes you. And instead of thinking, oh God, I feel horrible about myself, you bury that. And instead you say, you know what? He's an idiot. I'm the one who's great. I know everything. I'm better than everyone else. I'm going to show him. And that's what people who are narcissistic tend to do. and, And that seems to be a behavior associated with hubristic pride. So deep down, many people who exhibit kind of narcissistic behavior or the, as you call it, hubristic pride, they don't feel good about themselves. And in many ways, it's sort of a manifestation of a lack of self-confidence and self-esteem. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, now this is a fairly controversial idea. Some people who study narcissism say that's not the case. Narcissists just think they're really great. And the reason that they get aggressive when other people challenge them is because it kind of annoys them to have other people challenge them when they know that they're really great. My view is that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, you can sort of think about it logically. If you think you're great and you have total confidence in that, you're not sort of underneath it all questioning that or feeling insecure about it someone comes along and challenges you in some way. And and typically in research studies, the way this is done is you're asked to write a short essay about a topic that you may or may not have strong feelings about, spend five minutes or so on it. And you're just doing it for some course credit. So it's really not something, you know, you're, you're deeply invested in any way. You then submit the essay to who you think is another student, you get it back. 
And you find that the essay has been sort of torn apart. This other student's written red marks all over it, telling you how terrible they think it is. And so you you can imagine yourself in this situation. And again, if if you're someone who has a real genuine sense of confidence in yourself, you probably would respond to those criticisms by thinking, well, you know, I spent five minutes on that essay. It's really not something I care about. This is no big deal. Or maybe you think, you know, I think my essay was pretty good. This guy, he doesn't know what he's doing. That's, That's fine. You know, he can say what he thinks and I'll continue with my opinion. But what the narcissist does is instead say, that guy, I hate him, you know, and he lashes out at that guy. And and so studies show that narcissists will go to great lengths to punish the person who just gave them this negative feedback. They'll blast them with loud noise. They'll sort of dose them with really spicy hot sauce, whatever opportunity researchers essentially give them to punish these people, they'll take it. And so, you know, my view is that we really can only explain that kind of extreme aggressive behavior in the situation by suggesting that, well, underneath those feelings of confidence is really the opposite, is something else that the person's really desperately defending against. That's fascinating. You know, one of the things we've talked a lot about on the show is kind of the idea of accepting criticism and being really open about feedback and kind of understanding your own limitations. It seems like something that people who struggle with hubristic pride really can't do is accept criticism. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's a huge limitation. And I think it's one of the big findings of narcissism in general. And it seems to be the case for hubristic pride that criticism is a real weak point, (laughs) that it's sort of not acceptable to be attacked. These people can't handle it. And so I think that's actually one reason to think about the distinction between authentic and hubristic pride, because if you can focus on authentic pride, on sort of your genuine accomplishments, the things you worked hard for, and have a realistic sense of self-confidence, one based on what you actually did rather than this artificial self-aggrandized perception, that's all about defending these unconscious feelings of insecurity, then you can accept criticism. You know, then you can hear this negative feedback and say, you know what? They're right. I could do better or they're wrong. I think I did a really good job and I disagree with this person, but kind of take it either way and not get upset about it, not get too upset about it. And I think that's a really obviously important thing to do for people in almost any work domain. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of your research background and maybe starting with looking at pride displays and some of the research you've done around Olympic athletes and going to Burkina Faso and all of those different stories. Sure. Yeah. So when I started my research on pride, it was about 2003. And at the time, really, it's fair to say pretty much no one had studied pride. There were sort of hints of it here and there. Some developmental psychologists, people who study children had had kind of looked at pride in kids, but there really wasn't a lot in adults. And there's kind of a whole bunch of historical reasons for that. But one of the big factors is that Emotion research really took off in the 1970s and 80s when Paul Ekman famously traveled around the world and found that people everywhere recognize and show facial expressions of emotions in the same way. And this was a really kind of groundbreaking finding. He very famously went to Papua New Guinea and studied people who were members of this small tribe who'd never seen a Westerner before in their lives. And he showed them emotion expressions from the West and they identified them in the same way that Westerners did. And so this was a big deal because it suggested emotions are universal, right? If people all over the world identify emotion expressions in the same way, that has to mean that expressions aren't something that each culture creates individually, you know, in its own way. Instead, it has to mean that emotions are are part of our human nature. They're something that we evolved to experience and display. And that was a really kind of groundbreaking finding at that time. Now, that was really great, but the downside of it was that Ekman studied and found evidence for universality for only a very small set of six emotions. And these six emotions, you know, you probably can maybe guess what they are, but anger, fear, sadness, disgust, happiness, and surprise. 
they do seem to be universal. They have these universal facial expressions and they're important in many ways and, and serve all kinds of adaptive functions for humans. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other emotions out there as well that might also be adaptive and important. And yet what people took from Ekman's research is that actually, no, only these six emotions, only these six that have these universal facial expressions, those are really the only kind of important emotions worthy of study and fundamental to the human species. So when I sort of got interested in pride in the early 2000s, you know, there really hadn't been much done on it, partly for this reason, but it occurred to me that, well, you know, perhaps pride does have a universal nonverbal display. And the thing about Ekman's research was that it was really restricted to the face. He was very focused on finding the emotions that people show in their faces. And pride, you can't show it just from the face. If you look at what a facial expression of pride looks like, you won't be able to tell it from happiness. It looks essentially the same. However, when people feel pride, they do do something distinctive with their nonverbal behaviors. It's just that what they do involves their body as well as the face. And so you can think about this, right? People who feel pride, yes, they smile, but they also tilt their heads upwards a little bit. They push out their chests. They pull back their shoulders. They basically make themselves expansive in various ways. Sometimes they raise their arms above their head and put their hands in fists. It's this really expansive, very visually apparent display. And so we thought, well, you know, if we can show that that display is also recognized as pride or recognized reliably by people all over the world, then that might mean that pride, much like these other six emotions, is a fundamental part of human nature. And so to do that, we basically began by having people pose expressions that we thought mapped onto what we expected pride to look like. And we tested whether other people recognized them. And, and we started just, you know, in California where I was in grad school. And then we took it to Europe and then eventually to Burkina Faso. As you mentioned, we traveled to this country in, in West Africa. We were able to do studies with the help of a collaborator there with people who very much had almost no exposure to really any culture outside their own, certainly to anyone in the West. These were people living in what anthropologists call a small-scale traditional society, basically living off the land in much the same way as their ancestors had for really for millennia. They lived in mud huts with no plumbing or electricity in the rural countryside of this country that's incredibly poor. Burkina Faso is typically ranked as the second or third poorest country in the world, as a result of which they have really no access to anything outside of their own country, right? There's no, there's no media. At the time, there was no internet in these rural villages. Sometimes in the cities you could find it, but certainly not where we were doing our research. No magazines. So really no way for these people to have somehow seen a Western pride expression, right? It's hard to tell a story about how that could have happened. So when we showed them pride expressions posed by people from the U.S., we found that they recognized them and, you know, they recognized them and then they were able to say, yeah, that's pride. And so that's really good evidence that this expression isn't something that's unique to American culture, but rather is something that's universal, that is part of our nature, right? Because again, it's hard to explain how these people on the other side of the world would recognize this expression in the same way if it were not for the fact that humans as a species recognize the emotion in this way, because we evolved to do that. We evolved to recognize the pride expression. And you also studied blind Olympians, right? And they yes. demonstrated the same expression. Yeah, yeah. So the Burkina Faso study was nice because we looked at recognition. But, you know, recognition is just kind of one side of demonstrating a universal expression. You also want to know that people actually show this expression when they're feeling pride. And so to do that, we looked at Olympians. These were judo athletes in the 2004 Olympic Games. And we just looked, we coded their behaviors 
after every match in that Olympics. And we did that. We actually were fortunate to have photos taken by an official Judo Federation photographer. So they were really high quality photos, very up close to these people. This guy was right on the mat with them. And they were moment by moment shots of, of every behavior these people engaged in, you know, while experiencing what's probably the most intense pride of their lives if they won their match. And we simply tested whether the behaviors these people showed, in fact, mapped on to this recognizable pride expression that we'd found to be you know, recognized by people all over the world. Sure enough, it did. And we found no differences by culture. So we looked at you know, athletes from countries all over the world. And basically, no matter what country they were from, they tended to respond to the success experience by displaying pride. Then we looked at blind athletes. So we looked at the Paralympics, where you have people who, who are blind, including people who are congenitally blind, meaning they were born blind. So they've never been able to see. And the reason that's really important is because here we have a group of people who literally could not have learned to display pride from watching others, right? They've literally never seen a pride expression. And so while, you know, the athletes from countries all over the world probably have seen other people show pride, right? They're, you know, professional athletes participating at the Olympic level. They're obviously exposed to lots of cultures. For these blind athletes, that's just not the case. And when we looked at how these people responded to success, we saw exactly the same thing. Just like athletes from countries all over the world who had sight, the congenitally blind athletes also responded to winning an Olympic match by displaying these pride behaviors. So humans display pride in a similar way across many different cultures. Does that vary for displays of authentic pride versus hubristic pride? It's a great question. And it's something that we've really kind of tried to look into in, in a number of different ways. The short story is no, both authentic and hubristic pride are associated with the same nonverbal expression. So the expansive posture, the little bit of a smile, the arms extended out from the body, People will see that and will sometimes call it authentic pride and sometimes call it hubristic pride and really can't reliably distinguish between the two. Now, if we give them a little bit extra information, so if we tell them something about the person showing pride, like for example, this guy is known to be kind of arrogant, right? He thinks he's really great. Then they'll say, okay, that's hubristic pride, right? So with context, they can make this distinction. But without it, we've failed to find any clear sort of pattern there, which which I think is surprising in many ways. And, and I don't want to say the story's over there. I think future studies might find a distinction. But that seems to be what we found so far. So we talked about some of the downsides of narcissism and hubristic pride. What are some of the benefits of authentic pride? Well, authentic pride is in large part what motivates us to want to succeed. So basically, authentic pride is what we feel when we've worked hard for a particular success. And it is essentially our mind signal for telling us that we are doing the right thing. That is to say, we're doing what we need to do to become the kind of person we want to be, which really means the kind of person our society wants us to be, because we all evolved to want to have this sense of self that we feel good about, because doing so makes sure that you know we essentially stay included within our societies, that people don't reject us, and eventually that we gain status in our societies. And authentic pride is essentially the emotional signal that tells us we're on track toward doing that. And so what that means is, Authentic pride is incredibly rewarding, right? It's, it's one of the most pleasurable emotion experiences. We all really want to feel it because it's not just that we're happy. It's that we feel good about ourselves, right? And, and we desperately want to feel good about ourselves. That's just how we evolved to be. And so as a result of that, we are very much motivated to want to attain authentic pride. And that desire is what pushes us to achieve in all kinds of ways. We had one interesting study, I think, that showed this where we looked at undergraduate students' responses to their performance on an exam. 
And this is a real exam they took in their class. And we took a look at how well they did. And then we asked them to tell us how much pride they felt in response. And then we asked them a few weeks later, okay, are you going to study the same or differently for your next exam? And then we looked at how well they did on that next exam. And it was interesting because we thought, okay, the people who did well in that first exam, they're going to tell us they felt a lot of authentic pride as a result. And then those pride feelings are going to motivate them to work even harder for the next exam. And they're going to do even better. And that wasn't actually what we found. So the people who did well, they did feel authentic pride. That was as we expected, but they didn't change their work habits for the next exam. In fact, what they said is, you know, I worked hard for the last exam. I did well. I feel good. I'm going to work the same way. So it's sort of like these are already people who are performing at a really high level. They don't actually need to change their behavior. And it's probably more adaptive that they don't change their behavior. And in fact, when they don't, they still end up doing quite well on the next exam. What was really neat, though, was that the people who didn't do so well on that first exam, the students who sort of underperformed, many of those students told us they felt a lack of authentic pride in their performance. They essentially did not feel authentic pride in their performance. And that lack of authentic pride, that is the absence of those feelings those people told us about, that led them to tell us a few weeks later, I am going to change my behaviors. I'm going to study differently for the next exam. And those changed behaviors in turn led to an improved performance on the subsequent exam. And we were able to trace that improvement in their performance directly back to those missing feelings of authentic pride. So it's a bit of a complicated story, but the short version is when people don't do well, when people are missing that feeling of success, and are able to recognize, hey, you know, I'm not feeling that sense of confidence and self-worth that I want to, that absence can actually directly motivate a change of behavior, which leads to improved performance. So the drive for authentic pride is what creates that motivation. That's exactly right. Yeah. Earlier, you kind of briefly touched on the concept of emotions being adaptive. And and for somebody who is listening and doesn't kind of understand what that means, could you contextualize that? And I think, you know, sort of specifically within talking about pride. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's a good question in any case, because psychologists use the word adaptive in lots of different ways, which can be really confusing. Sometimes by adaptive, people mean it's good for you. You know, it's, it's good for your mental health. And that's actually not what I meant. What I mean when I say adaptive is that it's something that we as a species evolved to do or to have because it increases our fitness. And, and fitness has a very specific meaning from an evolutionary perspective. It essentially just means increases your genes chances of replicating. So basically things that are adaptive are things that make it more likely that you're going to survive and reproduce or survive long enough to reproduce. And so from that perspective, the reason pride is adaptive is because it helps us get status. And the way that it does that, interestingly enough, varies for the two kinds of pride. So this is where I think things get really interesting because from a sort of mental health perspective, authentic pride is adaptive and and hubristic pride isn't. Like I said, it can lead to all kinds of psychological dysfunctions and poor relationships. But from an evolutionary perspective, Both prides are adaptive because they both help us get status, but they do it through very different pathways. So authentic pride basically motivates us to achieve, as I just kind of explained. And as a result of that, it helps us get a kind of status that we call prestige. And prestige is is essentially the kind of status that's based on earned respect. Prestigious leaders are people who have achieved a great deal. They're smart, they're wise, they have various abilities that everyone else admires. And as a result of that, people look up to them and people willingly choose to defer to them. Right? The group sort of thinks, this guy knows what he's doing. If I follow him, it's going to be good for me. It's going to be good for everyone. I'm going to learn a lot and everyone will benefit. That's one way of getting status. But there is another way of getting status as well. And this is what we call dominance. And dominant leaders are people who 
don't necessarily contribute anything of value to the group. They're not big achievers. They're not people who have special competencies or skills, but they're people who have control over some resource that everyone else in the group thinks is valuable. So for example, perhaps they're particularly wealthy or perhaps they're just big and strong. And they wield their control over that resource in a really manipulative and aggressive way, essentially threatening and intimidating other people and and forcing them to give them the power that they feel they want. So you can think of a dominant leader as sort of the boss who threatens his employees, right? If you don't do what I say, I'm going to fire you. People give that boss power, right? Employees will do whatever the boss says. They'll defer to him, but they don't want to. They don't respect him. They're not giving him the power because they're willingly choosing to. They're doing it because they feel that they have no choice at all. And we found in some studies that, in fact, both dominance and prestige are effective ways of getting social influence. Both of these tactics actually work in terms of getting ahead. So they're both going to be adaptive strategies. But one, prestige seems to be really particularly facilitated by authentic pride, whereas dominance is facilitated by hubristic pride. The reason for that is because hubristic pride, again, is an emotion that makes people feel like they're better than everyone else, makes them willing to engage in aggressiveness and manipulation, basically tactics that are required in order to take advantage of others, to advance their own needs and desires, and basically puts people in a mental state that's almost exactly what you would want in order to attain dominance, right? In order to sort of take over, take control, be aggressive, and really just dominate others and force them to give you the power that that you're looking for. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So the data shows that both paths can potentially be ways to achieve status and achieve what you want to achieve. That's right. That's right. So we did a study in which we looked at this where we had undergraduates come to our lab and work together to complete a task. They basically had to work together for about 20 minutes on this task. And we did this because it's sort of an ideal way to allow hierarchies to naturally form. Whenever you get a small group of of humans together and don't assign a leader, leaders kind of naturally emerge, right? Someone just takes charge, other people fall in line. It's just sort of how it works in our species. And so we wanted to know, well, how does this happen? What determines who 
who gets control over the group. So they did the task. And then afterwards, we had everyone in the group rate everyone else in terms of how dominant and prestigious they were. So how much they looked up to each person and how much they were basically afraid of each person and also how influential everyone was. So who really had influence over the group? We also measured how influential everyone was by having outside observers watch videos that we had taken. So we recorded these interactions on video, had outside observers watch the videos, and then they told us who they thought the most influential people in the group were. And that's a useful way of kind of getting beyond just people in the group who now have come to know these people and have relationships. They're going to be a little bit biased. And then we looked at actual influence in terms of the task itself. So who actually determined how the task played out? Who made the decisions about what the group was going to do for the task? And what we found was that the people in the group who were rated by their peers in that group as highly dominant were just as likely to get influence over the group as were the people who were rated by their peers as highly prestigious. And in fact, there was actually no difference in terms of how effective dominance was as a strategy compared to prestige. Both were equally effective in terms of being rated as highly influential by your peers, being rated as highly influential by outside observers, and in terms of actually getting influence in terms of determining the outcomes on that task. So that suggests that even though, you know, we might think, well, dominant leaders those people, we don't like them. And that's what we found. In fact, the people who worked in these groups told us they did not like the people who were dominant. They actually said they were afraid of them. But it's still an effective way of getting power, right? Even though even though we don't like these people, we give them power because we're sort of afraid not to. Despite the fact that they didn't like the dominant leaders, they still followed them, listened to them, and, and did what they want, which... That's exactly right, yeah. It, it kind of makes me think of the old saying, you know, would you rather be loved or feared? It seems like the research demonstrates either one might work. Yeah, unfortunately, right? It sort of turns out either one might work. Now that said, you know, if you think about it that way, well, either one works, but one gets you power and love, right? People really like prestigious people. They respect them. They look up to them and they also give them power. The other gets you power, but tremendous hate. And so if you have the choice, you know, there's sort of no reason to go for dominance over prestige if you have the option, right? If you can contribute something of value to the group, if you can be a nice person, if you can be helpful to others and still get power that way, that's the better way to go simply because, you know, it's not fun to be disliked. There's all kinds of negative psychological consequences that I mentioned before to hubristic pride, and, and that comes with dominance as well. And, you know, the thing about dominance is because they're not liked, their staying power is going to be fairly limited, right? People will follow them and do what they say as long as they feel threatened or intimidated by them. But as soon as they don't, right, when a dominant loses his power for one reason or another, perhaps his wealth comes into question, or you can think of, you know, in chimpanzees, the alpha male is no longer as strong as he once was. When that happens, that person's going to lose all power. And in fact, perhaps even be exiled from the group, right? You see coalitions will often form to overtake a dominant leader because no one likes this person and everyone wants to get rid of him. In contrast, if you're a prestigious leader, even if for some reason you no longer have your power for, you know, for whatever reason, perhaps you're not as wise as you once were, your skills deteriorate, people will still find a place in the society for you because you've retained their love, right? People really like you. And so they won't kick you out of the group, even if you're not as powerful as you once were. Doesn't some of the research show that dominance in some contexts was actually more effective than prestige? Yeah. So that's this other study that we did more recently. So what we did there was we had groups work together again, and we assigned a leader in each case. We just randomly sort of said one person in the group was going to be the leader. And we had them complete a bunch of different tasks together. And then afterwards, we looked at how well they did in all the tasks, and we had everyone rate their leader on, on dominance and prestige again. And our question was, who's going to do better on these tasks? The groups that are led by someone who happens to be really high in prestige or the groups that are led by someone who happens to be really high in dominance. And we sort of thought the prestigious leader was going to kind of win the day and, and everyone would, you know, they'd like that experience better. They enjoy it and they would do better on the tasks. 
And that's not what happened. The groups led by a prestigious leader did do better on one particular kind of task. It was a task that required creative out-of-the-box thinking. So it's called this brick test. Basically, people have to come up with as many creative uses for a brick as they can. And so it really is sort of this exercise in spitballing, feeling open, being comfortable with yourself and with your group. And it's kind of a fun exercise. And so a prestigious leader was actually very good at getting people to generate a lot of really creative answers in the brick test. But the other three tasks that we gave them, which required more analytical thinking, kind of reaching one right answer on a complicated logical test, for all of those tasks, groups actually did better if they were led by someone who was high in dominance. And that really surprised us. And, you know, I think it's very, it potentially has really important implications in terms of corporations and, and, you know, what kind of leader we want for different tasks. However, one caveat that I think is important to bear in mind is because we randomly designed the leader in these cases, right? We, the researchers said, you're going to be the leader. That's a situation where someone who, whose natural disposition is prone to prestige might not feel comfortable kind of taking charge in the way that's often necessary to reach a clear decision, right? There's a time when, you know, you can try for consensus for a long time, but eventually someone's got to make the call and, and come to the conclusion. When you put someone who's high in prestige in charge, they might not feel comfortable doing that. And I don't know that that's the case in the real world when leaders who are high in prestige know that they are at that position because they deserve it, because they've earned it, right? They've worked hard to get there. And in those cases, it's possible that people would be more willing to say, okay, you know, I tried for consensus, but now it's time and I'm going to make the call, which I think is what dominant leaders were doing in our study, because people who are prone to that kind of personality, I think don't have a problem doing that. You know, who cares if I don't deserve you know, being here, I'm the leader, I'm going to make the decision. So without delving into sort of the actual politics of it, a strategy of dominance that has caught many people by surprise and someone you've talked about in the past is Donald Trump. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah. Well, Trump is a great example of someone who has an extreme amount of hubristic pride, right? He's, I've used him in the book as an example of this because he really just throughout his life and his career has had no problem being so explicit about how great he thinks he is. And that's fairly unusual to see that level of explicit hubristic pride. You know, typically even, you know, people who have a lot of hubristic pride often know there's ways in which they're supposed to tone it down or show humility or, you know, tame it back basically. And, and Donald Trump has almost never done that. So he's a really nice example of that. And it's been particularly interesting to watch him in politics in the past couple of years because he really has used the dominant strategy to get ahead. And what I mean by that is he, you know, wields his power in this incredibly aggressive manner. He attacks extremely, you know, vehemently anyone who criticizes him. So the studies I was talking about before where, you know, people blast noise when they feel criticized, that's like Trump on Twitter, right? Anyone criticizes him, he lashes out and, and just incredibly angrily. And it's been really effective, right? People are afraid to attack him. So I think the large reason why he won the primary election is because he attacked all of the other candidates so harshly that many of them backed down. And more importantly, Republican activists who wanted to criticize him and perhaps support someone else couldn't because the reputational costs were too strong, right? He was attacking these people to the point where their reputations were being destroyed through social media and they sort of had no choice but to back down to protect themselves. And so this is really how dominance works. People are afraid to take on a dominant leader. In the case of Trump, I think it's because, you know, he's very effective at using aggression and at the same time gaining the support of a lot of people who see him as the tough guy who's going to be on their side. And then other politicians have really been afraid of angering those people, of angering you know, his mob of supporters who see him as the guy who's going to fight for them. And so that you create this situation where there's really no way for these people to take on Trump without risking angering the people whose support they feel they need. It's a fascinating and relevant real life case study in, in kind of some yeah. of the topics we're talking about. Changing directions completely. At the beginning of the interview, you touched on kind of the concept of self-conscious emotions. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that and kind of what those entail. 
Sure. So self-conscious emotions, they're a special category of emotions that we experience as humans and we don't think any other animal experiences. You know, there's there's evidence that other animals have dominance and submission, and certainly that's a precursor of pride and shame. That's probably evolutionary origins of pride and shame, lie and dominance and submission seen in other primates. But we humans are the only ones who really experience these self-conscious emotions because we are the only ones who have a fully complex sense of self. So humans are the species that basically can think about who we are, can kind of hold that in our minds, and then evaluate it. We can think about what kind of person do I want to be and is who I am today, is that getting closer to the kind of person I want to be or is it getting farther away? Do I feel good about the things I've done today or, or do I not feel good about those things? Do I feel like I need to change who I am right now? These are really complicated cognitive processes and we really do see them only in humans. And the emotions that we feel when we make these evaluations, those are the self-conscious emotions. And I know you haven't researched it in nearly as much detail, but I'd be very curious to hear kind of about some of the research you've done with shame and, and what your thoughts are about shame. Yeah. So shame is in many ways, the antithesis of pride, you know, pride. And I think this is a really important thing. Whereas pride is motivating, you know, both because we feel it, we want to feel it more because we like it. There's studies that show when we think about how much pride we'll feel from doing something good, like resisting temptation, that gets us to be more likely to do that good thing. You know, if we think about pride, we'll, we'll resist temptation more. Shame is not motivating in this way. There's very little evidence to suggest that shame actually motivates people to change their behavior for the good. There's evidence to suggest that when people feel shame, they want to be different. They wish they had a different self. They really don't like themselves. Shame is this kind of horrible, negative, global feeling about the self, but it's almost demotivating because we feel so bad about ourselves in such a global way. We feel powerless and, and sort of hopeless. And shame typically makes people want to hide and run away from their problems and escape them rather than try to approach them and do better. So we actually have one study where we looked at recovering alcoholics. These were people who were newly sober, trying to trying to sober up. And they came to our lab and we had them talk about the last time that they had a drink. And we had them do this while they were on video. And so this is like a really intense shame kind of moment for these people, right? This is often, you know, the time when they bottomed out, when the moment that perhaps led them to seek sobriety. And then, you know, we say goodbye to them and then we have them come back to our lab about four or five months later just to see how they're doing. And it's really interesting because what we find is in that first time they come in, they talk about the last time they drank we code their nonverbal behaviors while they're talking about their drink for displays of shame. And displays of shame basically look like the opposite of displays of pride. The head is tilted down, posture is constricted and narrowed. They're sort of hiding themselves away. And what we find is that the more shame these people show when talking about the last time they drank, the more likely they are to relapse when they come back four months later. That is to say, the more likely it is that they've now had a drink or several drinks. And in fact, the amount of shame they show while talking about their last drink actually predicts the number Number of drinks they've consumed, right? So essentially how bad the relapse is. So that's kind of neat evidence to suggest that if we feel shame about something, about ourselves, that's not going to help us get over that thing. It's actually going to potentially do the reverse and, and make us go ahead and do more of that bad thing. And I think that's because we sort of think, you know, I feel terrible about myself. This is who I am, but there's no getting out of it. So I might as well embrace it and, and just be this person. So how can we deal more effectively with shame? I mean, I think the best solution to shame is to try to instead feel guilt. So lots of research suggests that guilt is the much more adaptive negative self-conscious emotion, because instead of being about the entire global self, I'm a bad person, it's much more focused on the specific bad thing that happened, right? So when we feel shame, we feel, you know, I'm horrible. But when we feel guilt, we feel I did a bad thing. I messed up. You know, I forgot something. I didn't study hard for the exam. And so there's a solution there, right? Rather than sort of the whole self being the thing that's incriminated, 
It's just one behavior that's problematic. And so you can change that behavior. You can say, okay, I'm going to study harder next time. I'm going to work more on this. I'm going to change what I did. And studies do show that in fact, guilt is motivating. It motivates people to fix the situation, to apologize if they've hurt someone and to basically try to do better in the future. So that's really the best way to do it. And and really the only way to do that is when something goes wrong, not to attribute it to who you are as a person globally, but rather to something more specific that you did. I think that's a really important distinction and one that we won't go down this rabbit hole, but ties into in many ways, some of the things we talked about many times on the podcast, which is kind of the idea of the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset and the notion of, you know, you can always sort of change yourself. A sort of a related question, how do we cultivate authentic pride? Well, you know, I think the best thing to do in terms of thinking about how to cultivate authentic pride is to think about the kind of person you want to be. You know, I think this is this is a really interesting point that we often don't do. We often kind of are just living our lives day to day, getting by, everything's fine, not really thinking about whether we're becoming or, you know, doing the things that we need to do to become the kind of person that we really want to be, to develop the sense of self that's most important to us, to have an identity that we can feel good about. And often if we do, what we realize is we're not. But typically more often what happens is we just sort of feel like something is missing in our lives. In my book, I tell the story of Dean Karnazes, who's this ultra marathon runner who spent most of his life in a business career. And, you know, he was doing really well. He was having one success after another. He, you know, had a happy marriage. All was fine. And then the moment he turned 30, he just had this overwhelming sense that his life was not going the way that he wanted it to, that he wasn't satisfied with the person that he was. And he couldn't figure out what was wrong. But that night he went out drinking with his friends to celebrate his birthday. His wife went home early and, you know, this woman started flirting with him and he sort of realized he was close to possibly ruining his life, you know, flirting with an attractive stranger. And he just started running. And he ended up running all the way from his house in San Francisco, about 30 miles down the coast to Half Moon Bay in California. And this is someone who used to be a runner when he was in high school, but he hadn't run in, I think, 10 or 15 years at that point. So you can imagine, you know, how he felt the next day. But what he realized during this amazing run was that that's what he wanted to be doing, that he was someone who his sense of self was based on pushing himself physically to extreme levels. And that's really what he needed to be doing with his life. And so he made that a priority. And he started by on the weekends running and, you know, running nonstop and started to do 24 hour runs, which hard to believe, but they exist, 100 mile runs. And eventually he turned his whole life around and, and actually was able to give up his business career and parlay a running career into a profitable enterprise. And that's not something everyone can do. But I do think figuring out you know, who you are and what kind of person you want to be and what things you can do to best become that person, that's sort of really the answer to trying to achieve authentic pride. What's one piece of homework that you would give to somebody who's listening to this episode? homework. That's interesting. I guess I would say, you know, like I said, think about if there's something missing in your life in terms of, you know, attaining a sense of self-satisfaction. You know, you can think about it as pride, but I think pride is tough. We often don't like to talk about ourselves as feeling proud of ourselves because we get it confused with hubristic pride. So just think about satisfaction. What aren't you satisfied by in your life? And maybe it's work. Maybe you're bored at work and you're not mastering things and you're not having opportunities to master new things. Or maybe work is fine, but you don't have an opportunity to be creative in your life. And you're someone who really craves a creative outlet. Or maybe like Dean Karnazes, you want to physically punish yourself or, you know, physically challenge yourself, I should say, and train for a marathon. I think thinking about that kind of thing can open up new windows, right? New avenues to sort of thinking about things that people can do to start feeling more of a sense of authentic pride in their lives. And and again, it doesn't have to be a career switch. It can be picking up a hobby on the weekend, taking a photography class, you know, helping out others, coaching your kid's soccer team. There's lots of different ways, I think, to get these feelings. But the first thing to do is probably to, to think about what's missing? What am I not doing? What am I lacking in my life? 
So we touched on at the top of your new book, Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. I'm curious, you know, obviously listeners who want to kind of dig into this topic, that's a great place to start. What are some other resources you'd recommend for people who want to dig in and do some more research about this? Well, I mean, I guess it depends what level the research is. The book is a good sort of very broad overview of all the work that I've done on Pride and that others have done and then related topics on the things that we've been talking about, like sense of self and identity and evolutionary science. That's one way to go. But if you want a more in-depth look on my website, all my research papers are available there. So anyone who's interested can go to my website and check that out under publications and download papers or take a look if you want the more scientific version of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, if you're interested in this topic more broadly, of sort of how to use psychology or findings from social and emotion psychology to achieve in various ways, I think Angela Duckworth's new book is a great a version of that. She talks about grit, and I think grit is very much related to authentic pride. So that's a book that people might be interested in seeking out. For evolutionary science more general, I always recommend Steven Pinker's The Blank Slate. It's a bit of an older book, but it's a fantastic book. And I think still the best book out there in terms of just generally understanding what is evolutionary psychology, how did our minds evolve and why. It's really a readable take on that. So I'd recommend that. And where can people find you and the book online? Sure. If you go to UBC, that's University of British Columbia. So ubc-emotionlab.ca. And then if you do backslash take dash pride, that will get you right to the books page. But if you just go to ubc-emotionlab.ca, you can see all of my work and the kinds of stuff we do in my lab. Well, Jessica, this has been a fascinating conversation, very surprising kind of take on what many people consider, you know, sort of a negative attribute. So it's been really interesting to hear about your research and some of the really cool conclusions about authentic pride and prestige. So thank you very much for being on The Science of Success. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we just talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to scienceofsuccess.co, hit the show notes button at the top. You can get everything. And we have show notes for all of our previous episodes. If you're missing links, information, research studies, book recommendations from a previous episode or this episode, be sure to check out our show notes at scienceofsuccess.co. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 